1: With your host, Andrew
0: Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's back. He's been here before. He's written all over the place. Star Tribune, Wall Street Journal, one of those I still haven't got for some reason. uh, Yahoo News, recent graduate of Minnesota, but we're not going to hold that against him. Golden Gophers are welcome here for this day and this day only. We'll see how the football season goes before we go further than that. He's working on those LSATs, trying to get more knowledge jammed in there. He's a good guy. We're glad to have him back. I'm going to talk a little guns today, Benjamin Ianian, Welcome back, my friend.
1: Andrew, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, we'll have to quit talking to you once you become a lawyer, because now then you're one of. The, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we, <laughs> have, we have lawyers on all the time. We just treat them a little differently. <laughs> um, congratulations on getting school done. Good to have you back. You've got a piece out. You were writing in Spectator. Let's start big picture. You know what? Let's do it this way. Let's actually go big picture and then zoom in on this because I think the perspective is really, really important here. I think one of the biggest problems with gun control and gun rights, both both sides of this argument is when we, we only talk about it when there's an event, usually a tragic event or a legislative event. We had them back to back in this case. That's the only time people want to talk about these and we never string them together and we never look at it as a big picture thing, and we never look at it linearly instead of just as a sequence of things, I think that's a big problem because I think a lot of the issues with this is we want to just deal with them in the individual things with whatever our priors were, and we lose perspective on this. Do you think that's a fair way to kind of frame this all up?
1: I think that's a completely fair way to frame the discussion. I think that it is a problem that we seem to talk about this issue so often whenever in a, a, a terrible tragedy occurs. And then if there's a lull where there isn't a big event in the news cycle, then the discussion kind of goes to the back burner and people don't talk about it as much. And so we, we're always discussing this issue when passions and tensions are the highest. Um, you know, people's opinions can change. Um, from times of, you know, passion and fervor to when they're, you know, more calm and, and thinking about certain issues more collectively. And so I do think that it's important that, you know, we talk about the issues of gun violence constantly, because um, it, it is an issue in the United States that is worth our attention and our discussion. Um, but I agree with you, a, a large problem is that we only talk about it when there is a major event in the news cycle.
0: And the other side of that, of course, is is that even though we have, let's just say, mass shootings, every single one of them have unique aspects. They have unique uh, precursors. They have unique individuals involved in them. Thank God. Usually, as far as I know of mass shootings, it's usually a one and done for the perpetrators for a variety of reasons. That's another part of this perspective thing is that we're trying to solve a problem that is a little bit different every single time. Right
1: yeah every mass shooting is different you can't draw you know consistencies with each event and at the end of the day as much it is a huge problem i don't want to downplay you know mass shootings active shooters all this is a huge problem in the united states um but the events are so you know rare in the sense of you know compared to you know gun violence more generally or you know people wanting to go drive their cars, like people get in their cars way more often than we see an active shooter. And what I'm trying to illustrate with that is that we don't have a ton of data points um, because mass shootings and active shooters are so rare. It's hard to draw causal conclusions about what leads to these events occurring or, you know, what can we do to stop it? um, Because At the end of the day, when you don't have a large set of data points, you're not going to be able to draw, you know, easy conclusions about what is causing these events to happen.
0: Yeah. Benjamin Ianian joining us. Okay, let me give you the argument back to that. Uh, Folks that are for more gun control are going to say, well, of course, silly, the common denominator is the gun. So if we just get rid of the gun, then all the rest of that equation falls apart. What's the answer to that? Because that's what we hear a lot. That's what folks say. Well, the gun is the common denominator. So let's do something about the gun. What's your answer for that?
1: Well, I have a a few answers to that argument. For one, you know, people who argue stricter gun laws, you know, will eradicate this issue. I would just point to, you know, um, the gun violence archive data, actually. And if you go to worldpopulationreview.com, they have listed, um every state and how many mass shootings they had between 2013 and 2019 and if we look at it at a per capita basis so if we control for population size in these states you know states like new york illinois and california who have the strictest gun laws in the nation they have had on a per capita basis more mass shootings than states like Texas, New Hampshire, and Wyoming, who nu- notoriously have really relaxed gun laws. And so then if the idea is, well, let's find a way to you know ban guns completely, for one, I would argue against that for our own personal safety and, and liberties, because we've seen throughout history, whether it was Nazi Germany, we saw in the um, Ottoman Empire, um, the Turks um, carrying out a Genocide against Armenians, um, and then we've seen um, racist lawmakers in the history of the United States trying to prevent Black Americans from obtaining firearms. You know, obtain um, banning guns would put us all at risk to government tyranny and oppression. Um, but then, I also don't even think it is possible to ban guns. People love to point to Australia. Australia had a you know a buyback program um, for their guns, but estimations are that only. Uh, 20% of people actually complied with that buyback. And authorities have admitted that there is a large um, black market for guns in Australia, where even organized crime organizations are able to get fully automatic weapons. And so the idea is, if there is a supply of a good, and there's enough demand, no matter how much how many laws we try to use to restrict the circulation of that good, we're just going to drive it circulation underground. We see that with drugs in the United States. You know, We've had a war on drugs. There's plenty of drugs circulating on the black market. We saw that with alcohol during the prohibition era where per capita consumption of hard liquor actually rose during prohibition. And so I think that we're living in somewhat of a fantasy world. If we believe we can just get rid of guns or stricter gun laws would eradicate this issue because we have plenty of reason to doubt that would be the
0: case. Yeah. Benjamin Iranian joining us now here. Here's the crux of the piece you wrote in the spectator though, is that the good guy with the gun, part of its narrative, there's some truth to it. And to be fair, this is a very small percentage. This doesn't happen that much. However, Here's where I think we need to go back to the wider perspective before we delve into the specific examples you give. People are starting to see, we are seeing minority groups go start buying guns more and more. We're seeing women is an exploding segment of gun owners in America. People that are vulnerable and or feel themselves to be vulnerable are wanting to arm themselves. That did not happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when they see the issues with law enforcement and they see the issues with law enforcement response to things like shootings and they see things with societal responses, they don't feel safe and they want to exercise their right to self-defense. I think that's an important context before you go, because I think there's a habit of going, well, these are cowboys or these are renegades or these are people just running around shooting guns. I think this is a small percentage, but I think we're going to see more of it because the numbers don't lie. Gun ownership's going up, right?
1: Absolutely, gun ownership's going up, and in states where you know we see the relaxing of licensing requirements for carry permits, we see applications going through the roof. Last time I checked in Maryland, their um, concealed carry permit applications were rising at a rate of you know 700 uh, percent at a 700 percent increase and permit applications at the time I wrote the Spectator article, and so yeah, people are seeing what's going on with law enforcement. We saw in Uvalde an inexcusable law enforcement response to a school shooting in Parkland, Florida, in 2018. We saw a officer hide um, when there was a school shooter, and so people are arming themselves because they believe in their right to self defense. They see that we are seeing active shooters um, across the country. It seems that almost weekly or biweekly, there's a new new story of active shooters. And we see law enforcement not always acting in the ways that they ought to. And so people are now taking seriously their right to self-defense. And as a result, they're arming themselves.
0: Benjamin Ianian joining us on Hertel. Tell. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of the specific instances with good guys with guns or good Samaritans with guns. What can we apply? Also, what we can apply, because that's not going to be scalable in every situation. Tough topic again, gun control, Second Amendment rights, the eternal struggle between the two. Benjamin Ianian's helping us sort it out on Hertel, and we'll continue with him right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Benjamin Ianian's back on the program. We're talking a little bit gun control versus Second Amendment and the Good Samaritan narrative. It's fair to call it a narrative, isn't it? Because it, it seems to be more narrative than it actually happens. You actually did the research on this. When it does happen, what's some of the takeaways that you found? What's some of the common threads? It is, again, it is rare. It's not scalable to every single situation, but when it does happen, what's some of the common threads you're seeing when you wrote about it?
1: Yeah. So first let me give an idea and a contextualization of how rare this actually is. And, you know, earlier in our discussion, I said that, you know, Active shooter events are incredibly rare, which makes it hard to draw conclusions from them. And so from 2000 to 2021, um, according to Texas State University data, there were 464 active shooter events in the United States, which is defined as when there's an individual or multiple individuals attempting to kill or are killing multiple unrelated people in a public place this is what we tend to think of when we're talking about you know tragic mass shooting events and so there were 464 from 2000 to 2021 and in 24 of them the shooter was stopped by um a legally armed bystander before the police actually arrived and so the one that i focused on in my op-ed for the american spectator Was in Greenwood, Indiana, we saw an individual bring a handful of firearms and about 100 rounds of ammunition into a mall and opened fire in a food court. An illegally armed bystander, a 22-year-old, had his pistol on him and was able to neutralize the shooter within, I believe it was 15 seconds. And then in West Virginia in 2000, or just a couple months ago in 2022, in May, um, an individual stopped an active shooter that opened fire on a graduation uh, or birthday celebration type party. They were able to stop the active shooter before the shooter could injure a single person. And so it is a narrative that you know good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns, because it's not like this happens anywhere near most of the time there is an active shooter. Um, but one thing that's important for context in that is that in many states, it was incredibly hard to get a concealed carry permit, Um, really up until recently when the Supreme Court struck down a New York firearms regulation. Um, It was incredibly hard in plenty of states. And as we see laws changing, we see more individuals being able to carry arms. And hopefully, they'll be able to play a role in stopping these active shooters because an individual who wants to go do harm, to a random group of individuals. They don't care about the law. They don't care if they can legally own a gun. They don't care if they can legally carry that gun. If they're determined to cause harm, they bring those firearms wherever they're going. And so what you see is that law-abiding individuals can make us safer because if they are armed and they know what they're doing and they're educated on, carrying, on how to carry a firearm responsibly, they can stop an active shooter before police arrive on scene. And now there are risks involved because if you have two people shooting and the police show up, they might not know which one is the active shooter. And we've seen that go wrong um, in the past. At the end of the day, there are risks involved whenever there is a dangerous active shooter event. And I, and it was my opinion in my piece that we are safer at the end of the day when law-abiding citizens are carrying concealed firearms because they can act quickly instead of having to wait for police officers to arrive on scene if they aren't already.
0: Yeah. Now, here we go. We're going to go to the devil's advocate argument again. And it is a fair argument to make is like you have armed citizenry, unlike the police who have standards to carry their firearm. They have to be qualified. They have to train on it. And. Um, Setting aside the part of a police response not being what it should be, sometimes they we know what they are at least on paper capable and expected to do. You do not have that with the citizenry, especially when fifty states can have theoretically fifty different gun uh, laws. Some of them may have certain requirements for concealed carry. Some of them may not. Some of them may have open carry with no uh, no standards whatsoever. It's going to vary that part of this is not going to change. We have a Supreme Court that is very favorable to gun rights right now, so I would suspect those court cases are going to trend that way, at least for the foreseeable future. The argument is you don't know whether that good guy with the gun actually knows what he's doing or not. Again, the sample size you have, we have some success. There's also a potential for tragedy here, yes?
1: There's absolutely a potential for tragedy. I think that That is a completely fair counter argument that, you know, we don't necessarily know whether or not the good guy with a gun knows what they're doing to any similar degree that a police officer does. I think that that is a fair, you know, pushback. But what I would argue is that for the most part, you know, people who go, they purchase a firearm or there are firearms, you know, in their family and they've been taught how to shoot. I think that the the one issue is these people are viewed as, you know, gunslingers that have no idea what they're doing. A lot of individuals who own firearms are very dedicated to understanding firearms. They have an interest in firearms. They enjoy going to the gun range, and so I don't think it's a fair characterization of individuals who tend to carry firearms um, or individuals who go through the concealed carry permit process. Um, I don't think it's fair to characterize them as gunslingers, which I feel a lot of individuals in the media do these days. Um, But on top of that, there are states, 25 of them to be exact, that have constitutional carry, which says that if you do not, uh, or if you are legally able to own a firearm, a handgun, then you can legally carry it in public without um, going through any permit process. And there are obviously dangers associated with that. I mean, imagine if I'm 18 years old, uh, well, 21 for a handgun, imagine I'm 21 years old, I purchase a pistol, I don't know the first thing about it, and all of a sudden I'm carrying it. There are obviously going to be dangers associated with that. Um, There are other states who have incredibly strict um, licensing processes. They now just have to be objective where they require live fire training, they require classroom training, and they require individuals to complete a test um, administered usually by a DOJ certified instructor um, to be able to carry a concealed firearm. I think that at the end of the day, those types of objective criteria, if we require those for individuals um, to be able to carry a concealed weapon, I think that that would be able to quell some people's fears that, oh, you know someone might not know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, I also believe most people who are actually inclined to legally carry a pistol on their hip tend to know what they're doing. Um, And that's mostly from my own experience. I live in Northern Virginia where not a lot of people own firearms. And I know a handful of individuals who do and who live in Who have since moved to other states and obtained their concealed carry permits, none of them are the type of individuals that are just like, oh, I think guns are cool. Let me go carry this around. Um, And now there certainly are going to be those people. And like I said at the beginning of this podcast, there are dangers associated with guns. I think the benefits outweigh them. There are dangers associated when there's an active shooter um, event. What we need to think about is not what is a perfect solution. We need to think what is the best trade-off. And it, it is my opinion that it is a much better trade-off to allow law-abiding citizens to carry firearms with the risk that some of those individuals may not be incredibly well-trained with their firearm than to try to prevent law-abiding individuals from from carrying concealed firearms and opening up you know, different gun-free zones and places where firearms are heavily restricted um, to active shooters without any pushback, um, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to wait for law enforcement to show up, or you're going to have to hope that they act correctly. And so is my opinion, the trade-off of allowing law-abiding citizens to carry concealed firearms outweighs the concerns with the small cohort that might not be as trained as we would like them to be
0: Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast district of conservation it's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from dc and beyond from topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices listen to the district of conservation on apple podcast or wherever podcasts are played Speaking of small cohorts, uh, Benjamin Haney and joining us. Uh, we live in the real world, so this is just a real world question. Social media is what it is. It amplifies everybody, good, bad, or indifferent. Is the small minority of folks online who go way over the top with their love of the Second Amendment and their love of guns, the the amosexual mean, some people call mm-hmm. it. Let's just be real here. They're not helping. If you really like the Second Amendment and you're trying to argue for, you know, gun rights and there's a small minority out there, that's probably not helping the cause here. What do you do about that? Because there is perceptions. Here's the problem. Both sides are going to grab the other side's extremes is the argument against the other side. Right. I don't think you can solve that problem because people still have freedom of speech. But. Is there a responsibility for gun owners to kind of police their own a little bit and 2A advocates to also reel in their own extremism, not just pointing at the other side's extremism?
1: I think that being a jerk online and throwing your interest or your passion in other people's faces in a way that is meant to rile others up is annoying, infuriating, disgusting. I mean, to put whatever um, adjective you want on it. I think it is a bad thing for discourse. I don't, I think at the end of the day, we have an issue in this country of mass shootings. There's an issue of active shooters and there's an issue of gun violence and they're all wrapped in together. And at the end of the day, we all want people to be safer. So yes, I would agree that the small cohort online of individuals that are just looking to piss off people, who are worried about gun violence by throwing, you know, their their guns and their ammo in people's faces and and not wanting to actually engage in any discussion. I do agree that it hurts discourse and it allows people who are ardent second amendment opponents to grab onto those people and use them as, you know, examples of People like me who support the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, it's easy to then paint everyone with a broad brush. And now we're all trying to argue, you know, who's extreme, who has what view instead of just sitting at the table and and having a discussion. Because of that cohort, a lot of times my first order of business when having a discussion with someone is to prove to them that I'm not that guy. And now we just wasted 10 minutes where we could have been talking solutions on me trying to get them to understand that I'm not the person on social media throwing this stuff in your face. And so it is absolutely a detriment to discourse.
0: Yeah. And I think the other, the reversal on this is true too, that in my discourse with folks, as we try to work through this issue, I think there's a real disconnect with folks that want to say people should not have weapons for self-defense purposes. And you can argue all the rest of it, but really the second amendment, it's self-defense. Do you have a right to protect yourself, your property, and your family? Unless more and more, one of the overriding issues in all of our country is government accountability. That goes to law enforcement. We're seeing it in schools. We're seeing it in whatever. When the government is not accountable for your safety, and we're seeing it more and more with law enforcement, we saw it in Uvalde. You brought it up earlier. I think there's a real disconnect for them to go all the way to, well, nobody ever needs a gun because the government's going to protect you. That's just so insultingly condescending, not true to people's bare eyes and common lived experience. That's just as harmful, too. Do you disagree?
1: No, I think it's incredibly harmful for two reasons. You know, you point out that we're seeing the government failing to protect us in so many ways today. Um, and I think that. Yes, people would have to shut off their eyes from what's happening on the news and in different areas of the country to believe that the government will simply protect us. But what it also does is it completely disregards all of human history where most extreme tragedies have actually occurred at the hands of the state. I mean, I pointed to a few um, earlier in our discussion you know there was a gun registry in germany created in the early 1930s and when the nazis took power they used that registry to disarm political opponents and then later in the 1930s they used that registry to disarm german jews you know they they ordered jews to hand in their weapons if they didn't comply it was pretty easy to know that they weren't complying because they had a gun registry um i'm an armenian and so my ancestors were you know tragically many of them were killed in the Armenian genocide. Um, individuals in Armenia were disarmed systematically um, before the carrying out of the Armenian genocide. Slaves in the United States couldn't legally own firearms. There were then black codes which tried to bar black individuals on the basis that they weren't citizens. And then um, after you know, black people were considered citizens in the United States, then there were Facially neutral laws, which basically raise taxes on guns and ammunition to try and prevent black Americans and also poor people from owning firearms. Um, Many civil rights activists actually encouraged black individuals to obtain firearms to protect their families from lynch mobs. Um, And then, once lynch mobs were thwarted, certain states tried to make gun laws stricter so that black individuals could not protect themselves. And so, not only for people to make the argument that you don't need a gun because the government will protect you, it's not only crazy because they're failing to protect us in so many ways today, it's crazy as well because we see a long history of humanitarian atrocities carried out by the hands of the state. Um, And I think that that's what baffles me the most out of the camp that, you know, you don't need guns. I think that that camp, I'm most baffled by the rejection or um, lack of acknowledgement of the history of the human population. Um, And so that cohort and the cohort on the right who wants to throw their guns in everyone's faces, I think both are really harming discourse in this country.
0: There's a lot more we could get into there, but we've got to leave it there. Uh, This topic is not going away. We're going to continue to talk about it, and it all goes back to basic rights. What are they, and where do your rights start and somebody else's start, and where's the state's implementation thereof? Good in-depth stuff. Benjamin Ianian. great having you back, buddy. Good job today tough topic. We probably ticked off a little bit of everybody, but that means you're having a good discourse. Let folks know until we get you back on again, how they can follow you. We're going to link to his piece that we were working off here. We're also linking to his social media, but tell folks where they can find you and follow you until we get you on Hertel again.
1: Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Iyanian, and then you can also find me on Instagram at biyanian 13 Just search my name and you'll find me on either. I post all my writings podcast appearances, et cetera on there. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on again, Andrew. It was really nice talking to you.
0: Yep. We'll have you back soon, my friend. Uh, be well, and we'll talk again soon, sir.